Chapter 31 Politics in the 20th Century Southern politics in the 20th century was as much concerned as ever with protecting the region's traditional economic and social interests against external and internal pressures. So emphatically was this true that in 1949, an acclaimed political analyst, V.O. Key, Jr., could write that the South employed the Democratic Party as an instrument for the conduct of its foreign relations with the rest of the nation. One might add that if the Democratic Party was the instrument, the United States Congress was the assembly for the conduct of these relations. Indeed, one of the ironies of Southern and national political history is that for three-quarters of a century after Reconstruction, the region was able, with remarkable effectiveness, to employ Calhoun's principle of the concurrent majority that presumably had died along with the famed Carolinian. This, of course, was not done through a dual executive or an official division of Congress into northern and southern voting groups, as Calhoun had advocated. Instead, it was accomplished through such devices as the single-party system in the South, the Party Congressional Caucus, and, until 1936, the party requirement of a two-thirds majority of the presidential nominating convention for the selection of a candidate. Such a combination of forces gave the South a disproportionate measure of control over one of the two major national parties. In addition to these developments, the Southern custom of re-electing men to Congress over long periods of years had the effects of giving Southerners a seniority that under United States Senate procedure placed them in the chairmanship and thus virtually in control of this body's most important committees when the Democratic Party held a majority. At the same time, an informal coalition of Southern conservative Democrats with Northern conservative Republicans increased the efficacy of Southern politics in matters of a critical sectional nature. Although, as the reader will perceive, Southern political energy was occupied with a great variety of new problems, the chief source of the region's political unity and distinctiveness continued to be the race issue. Southern members of Congress might divide, and often did, over matters of taxes, economics, or diplomacy, but they maintained a remarkable cohesiveness in defense of the section's racial practices. In the administration of Southern domestic affairs, the state and local governments might be conservative or progressive, but they were alike in their support of white supremacy. This continued sectional orientation was a significant cause for the relatively unimportant role in national affairs of 20th century Southern political leaders, as contrasted with that of Southerners during the first 60 years of the preceding century. Nine of the 12 presidents of the United States prior to 1850 were native Southerners. For 60 years before the Civil War, the chief justices of the Supreme Court were Southerners. Among 41 Americans adjudged by the editors of the Encyclopedia of Social Sciences as imported in domestic affairs before the Civil War, all but 14 were Southerners. Of the figures important for the development of political theory in the same period, this authority selects 27 from the South and only 25 from the remainder of the country. From the Civil War to the 1960s, 
No resident Southerner except the accidental Andrew Johnson was president, and the encyclopedia's editors listed only one Southerner as important in political theory. This contrast is heightened if one compares the magnificent leadership old Virginia gave the nation with the minor roles Virginians have played in national life recently. Inevitably, the decline in the section's proportion of the nation's wealth was accompanied by dwindling political influence. Likewise, the shift of the nation from agricultural to industrial dominance took power and prestige from the agrarian section and gave them to those places where industrial wealth was concentrated. Southern leaders prior to the 1930s were unable to express their talents adequately because their political party was generally in the minority. As inheritors of a defeated tradition, they tended to stand for lost causes and outmoded ideas, leaving to Northerners the championship of reality. Chapter 33 The Southern Economy Since World War II Neither the Southern leaders nor the masses of the population at the close of World War II expected the tempo of regional life to return to its former erratic but relatively unhurried beat. Yet it is doubtful that any seer, whether traditionalist or activist, foresaw the immense changes that lay in store. The South during the following decades experienced the greatest economic surge of its entire history. Ignoring gloomy forebodings of depression upon the closing of camps, war plants, and shipyards, the South enjoyed its share of the nationwide prosperity that continued into the post-war years. Industrialists and businessmen knew that the section's resources of climate, soil, and manpower had produced an abundance of war industries and a backlog of skilled and semi-skilled workers, and that all of these could be converted to peacetime needs. Southern economists sought to direct both local and imported capital into channels of production. Industrial researchers and engineers were prepared to apply mechanical and chemical discoveries to all available raw materials. Public opinion demanded that Southern congressmen sustain the post-war boom by voting for the removal of wartime controls on industrial production and consumer prices, for the continuation of price supports on farm commodities, for heavy subsidies to foreign nations under the Marshall Plan, and for expensive armaments to meet the communist menace in Europe and Asia. Southern optimism was not disappointed. Construction contracts rose to meet the demands of an expanding peacetime economy, while hundreds of war industries were rapidly converted to the production of civilian goods. In Chattanooga, for example, the Borg-Warner Company bought the Air Products plant in order to manufacture compressors for refrigerators. The Whelan Company, which had been making 90-millimeter guns, began turning out automobile parts for General Motors. In Birmingham, a huge aircraft modification center now constructed bus bodies, aluminum window screens, flame cultivators, and lightweight automobiles. A former shipbuilding establishment began to produce diesel locomotives, and a manufacturer of artillery shells started to make consumer goods, ranging from furniture to attic fans. In addition to the innumerable conversions of war plants, a multitude of fresh manufacturing concerns arose in the region. 
During the single year of 1947, a sum exceeding a billion dollars was invested in new factories and equipment. Employment, wages, and incomes were almost as high as wartime peaks, thereby providing a demand for food and fiber that raised farm prices to unprecedented levels. Tobacco sold for almost 50 cents a pound, and cotton for 41 cents, the highest in 27 years. The streets of southern cities and towns milled with crowds eager to spend their earnings. Even the Negroes and poor whites were able to purchase unaccustomed necessities and small luxuries in the new prosperity that suffused the southern economy. Visitors reared in the conviction that southern poverty was incurable found evidence to sustain the belief that the region had fundamentally changed. Gardens and grass had replaced run-down yards. Houses, barns, and fences were painted. Flashy new storefronts faced the courthouse squares. Consolidated schools, swank drive-in theaters, streamlined mills, and landscaped tourist courts marked the countryside. The average individual was better dressed and better nourished than even before. In front of rickety Negro schoolhouses in Mississippi stood shiny bicycles. The children coming out of the new Church of God tabernacle were almost indistinguishable from the businessman's children coming out of the Presbyterian church on the other side of town. The daughters of cotton pickers, now employed in the newly built factories, were able to buy dresses almost as chic as those of the daughters of merchants and planters. Statistics verified observations concerning the region's growing prosperity. The standards of living and wealth of the section, claimed a southern industrialist in 1951, have increased to make the South no longer a so-called backward area, but a leading area in many of the branches of the process industries. The post-war growth of Southern as well Chapter as... Chapter 35 and the lure of Change and Continuity in the Recent South The South experienced greater change during the quarter century following World War II than any other section of the United States. A veritable revolution took place in the economic, social, and political life of the region. It became more than ever an integral part of the nation, and its problems increasingly became the problems of the country as a whole. Yet old landmarks of sectional distinctiveness remained clearly visible. The changes themselves came about in a manner that was peculiar to the South. A perceptive sociologist wrote in the mid-1960s that the changes occurred within the framework of the established Southern social order, that the region's primary institutions and old modes of conduct survived, even though they were modified. Beliefs, values, and sentiments from out of the past are perpetuated, giving the South of today a stability of behavioral form and social relationship, even as the new social perspectives and arrangements continue to evolve. The South represented the nation's supreme example of a continuity in the midst of change. Southern class structure endured the effects of industrialization, urbanization, and prosperity. Descendants of the antebellum planters still formed a numerically limited gentry of high social prestige, even when bereft of money and political influence. 
they usually drew their livelihood from the ownership of property or from the professions, especially law, medicine, and the military. But tradition remained the primary resource for the preservation of their kind. According to a recent analysis of Southern thought, even most Boston Brahmins can hardly imagine the intense awareness of the past long dead and the preoccupation with matters of family, ancestry, and local history, particularly among older women of the Southern Patriciate. Nor was the tradition altogether the product of self-admiration. For most white Southerners of whatever class, and at least some black Southerners, still venerated the region's plantation past and conferred a certain respect upon its heirs. At their worst, these aristocrats, by popular consent, lived in a complacency that grew out of the conviction that everything worth doing had already been done by their forebears. At their best, they continued to represent a wholesome diversity on the regional and national scene, an emphasis upon personal honor and integrity, valor, graciousness of manners, and the perfection of good living, as opposed to the mere accumulation of wealth or the cultivation of utilitarian competence. The prevailing trend in Southern society after World War II was the increasing prominence of the businessmen and their financial and social allies in such professions as law, medicine, architecture, engineering, geology, and quite often the ministry and college teaching. The New South concept of progress through commerce and industry came into its own and spread from the metropolises to the smaller cities, and eventually into the thousands of towns and villages. The elite among the business and professional classes were the millionaire and multi-millionaire entrepreneurs in manufacturing, marketing, life insurance, and raw materials. The furniture, clothing, refining, extracting, and food processing industries of the post-war years spawned a group of affluent Southerners comparable to the cotton textile and tobacco magnates of the preceding century. Oil was the source of the most sensational wealth, especially among the swashbuckling prospectors of Texas. Men like H.L. Hunt, Sid W. Richardson, and Clinton W. Murchison stood at the head of a list of big rich that would have been at home among the Rockefellers, Vanderbilts, and Carnegies of an earlier age. Spreading down from the millionaires at the top was a pyramid of lesser business figures, self-made, rugged proprietors of small, independent enterprises. Around these manufacturers were innumerable contractors, truckers, machinery and appliance agents, service firms, and wholesalers and retailers.